2: This is Talk of the Devils, the athletics podcast dedicated to Manchester United. We're going to react to that eventful 0 0 draw against Southampton. We'll preview Rail Betis, the second leg over in Spain. And we'll also talk about a disappointing weekend for the women's team in the title race in the WSL. But it's a good morning to Andy Misson. Hi, Andy. Good morning. And a good morning to Carl Anker as well. Hi, Carl.
1: Morning, mate. You okay?
2: Yeah, right. We need to start with some apologies, don't we really? Um, Andy, you're first. So Ryan Smith on Twitter says, can you ask Andy Mitton for an apology for Bournemouth on the next Talk of the Devils? We know that you've been an outspoken critic of their position in the Premier League, but I hope you feel it's now justified after that 1-0 win over Liverpool. Um,
3: Sorry, Bournemouth, especially the 4,500 hardcore fans who went before you got
1: your billionaire owner.
3: How did they go on at the weekend, Bournemouth? Don't know, Carl. Do you know how they went on? I think I just said it a moment ago.
1: They played some sort of mid-table team. They got a win. It
3: was pretty good. Yeah, I'd like to apologise to Bournemouth, regardless of how they went on at the weekend. It's a very nice town with a temperate climate, wonderful beaches. I've walked through the gardens in the centre. In the 80s, there were a lot of scousers there. Sandbanks is a remarkably beautiful area with very good value-for-money housing and uh, quite a few United fans in Bournemouth, actually. I've never had a beef with anyone who follows um, Bournemouth, but it annoys me that the ground's so small that it only holds Um, 10,000. I I, I look on Google Maps This is a very strange-sounding
2: apology, Andy, by the way. All right.
3: Bournemouth, one, (laughs) Liverpool, nil. Take back everything that I said. Well done. Don't beat Manchester United, 8-0, in May. (laughs) Whatever your ground's called these days. Used to be Dean Court. What were you going to say about the Google Maps... Yeah, I, I don't even know whether I should say this publicly but I, I, I look in at the ground and think you've got to expand it but it's surrounded by houses and little things like that frustrate me and I realise they shouldn't do. But I, I think that... I can't say teams shouldn't be allowed in the Premier League with only 10,000 seats because they have got there on merit.
2: Is it surrounded by houses? I'm pretty sure there's like a cricket pitch or something right next to it and it? it's pretty picturesque. On, on two sides of it
3: there's houses. I, I think you could Why expand on the stadium
2: on, on one side.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I've spent the half an hour in the lead up to this podcast studying Real Betis' stadium.
2: <laughs> so, yeah, I can imagine. Let's crack
3: on. We don't want to bore people about stadiums.
2: I think we better should because the apologies don't stop there either. Carl Southampton are getting relegated and there's question marks over Gavin Buzunu. Explain yourself, please.
1: Yeah. Well done, Mr. Buzunu. Uh, I said statistically he was looking like one of the worst goalkeepers in the league. Looking uh, like? And, and he was. Uh, and I said he, the Premier League was, was maybe a, a level above his standard. But he pulled off some very good saves to keep the scores nil-nil against Manchester United. This is an apology, so I'm not going to mention something else. I'll save that for the next bit. Sorry, Gavin Bazuno, You did very well against Manchester United. Uh, and long may your uh, blossoming international career for the Republic of Ireland continue as well.
2: Okay, let's move it on then. Nil-nil. Not great, Andy. Not disastrous, considering the league position. I spoke to David De Gea after the game, and he he basically said now that the team believe it's a fight for the top four, which I think we all know. He said they gave it as much as they could in terms of that fight for the T-word. We jinxed it, obviously. But yeah, where does it leave United, do you think?
3: Third? Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I think um, David... I'm impressed that he found time for you because he had a very busy afternoon. I think there was 18 goal attempts to contend with. If you're a neutral, which we're not, it was a very entertaining game. It actually was, wasn't it? Yeah. It was really entertaining. And I think Southampton deserve a lot of credit for the way that they played. Not just when Casemiro was sent off. I thought be, they looked really dangerous even up to that point. And, and good good for them, but bad for them that they've taken two points off Manchester United. I kept asking myself during the game, "Would you accept a draw here? No, no, yeah, yes, yes, yes." As, as Southampton attacked again and again, and James Ward-Prowse came very close. To David de Gea made some some very good saves. The rights or wrongs of of Casemiro going going off, he cannot be getting sent off. Yeah. He just can't be getting sent off. I was frustrated. I think there should have been a penalty in the first half when Marcus Rashford uh, put that ball in. I think it was um, handled by Bella Co- Co- Chap. It was it was Bruno, actually, wasn't it? it wasn't Marcus. No, Marcus is cross.
2: And I think it was Marcus Rashford, but it, it's the technicality of the handball rule. It hit his chest first, then onto okay. his arm. There's then the complication of the fact that was his arm supporting his body or not. You know, it, it, it's, yeah, that's the handball law, isn't it, basically? Just say I'm <laughs> wrong if you want. I, I can take it. Well, it's not that you're wrong, is it? That, that's And that's what people get frustrated about, is that... You can read the law. Um, you can, and, and it's even boring <laughs> talking about this, really, isn't it? <laughs> but the, but there's like a get out, basically, isn't there, for these sort of situations? But what about Casemiro then, Carl? I mean, you're in the ground at the time. It didn't feel when you watched it like initially that it was a red card challenge. But then when you see the replay back, I mean, I, I can't see United appealing it or or even trying to mount an appeal, really.
1: No. I, so if they Casemiro's got a full match ban, and that includes the FA Cup game against Fulham. On the weekend, if they lodge an appeal and the appeal is dismissed, it will be increased to a five-match ban.
2: Only if it's deemed frivolous, I think.
1: Yep, and I think that level of that potential. I mean, if I'm Ten Hag, I'm probably not going to risk a five, five, one, uh, five ban, especially when there's also the international break in between, which should give a little bit more time for Sabitzer and or maybe possibly Christian Eriksen to return to full fitness as well. So, in theory, there's enough bodies. To cover for Casemiro, so you you don't lodge a complaint in the ground. I mean, the tackle tackle is made, and you're like, oh, all right, heart, you know, fine. But the moment you hear that VAR call checking, you're like, oh no, not again. Um, and Ten Hag after the game point said something along the lines of VAR showing still images for things that happen in motion can be quite mm. difficult, and he, he, and yeah. I think Ten Hag his point was you shouldn't just look at one still image on a tackle and you should play the entire section and then make your assessment, which was interesting because, yeah, throughout the season, what well, I say, until the United drew one all with Crystal Palace, Ten Hag didn't really go for talking about referees at all, whereas now he's had to do it three times in the last seven weeks because Casemiro just keeps getting booked and suspended.
2: He's had a disastrous spell, Casemiro, hasn't he? I mean, he's been absolutely brilliant for United this season, but he's had four Premier League matches, Andy, where he's been booked at Palace, missed a game, he's returned got sent off against Palace, missed three games, then played a 7-0 at Liverpool and then that at the weekend. I mean, it's the worst time of his short Manchester
3: United career so far. He didn't play well at Liverpool, getting sent off for the second time at Old Trafford in six weeks. We miss him because I think it's fair to say he's the most important Manchester United player. The lad looked distraught when he went off, but you are risking when you're going for a, a challenge like that. And I just think he's got a hone himself a little bit with the Premier League and the way English football is. But I feel really conflicted even saying this because it's usually the other way around. The Premier League is the one which lets physicality thrive. Yeah, In Spain, it's where there is an art for diving over nothing. And when I was writing about him when he first joined, I was playing up his disciplinary record in Spain. People were saying, this guy has played like four million games and never been sent off. Oh, he had like a, a Gary Lineker style disciplinary 366
1: record. 366 games in Europe's top five leagues. So that's across Real Madrid, exactly. his loan spell at Porto and his you know pre-World Cup stint at Manchester United. And he never got a direct red card. Then he gets the direct red card for trying to throttle Will Hughes uh, against Crystal Palace. And now he's got another red card for uh, basically trying to amputate uh, Alcatraz uh, against Southampton. I, I, I think it's interesting that both these direct red cards have been VAR.
2: I don't think Alcaraz thought there was any malice in it, did he? Cause,
1: no, they, cause they he had a really of, nice hand strength afterwards. Yeah, they had a moment afterwards. Uh, Anthony was almost the first in to commiserate Casemiro, which I thought was quite interesting. Normally, it's the much older player who's going up to the younger player, going, "It's alright, calm down." But you've got Anthony, you know, pointing to the United badge on Casemiro's shirt, going, "Don't worry, you're still the great United player." Uh, Casemiro absolutely distraught, as Anthony said. And I know some people listening to this podcast want us to say it's never a red card, but when you are, when you have your rate your foot raised in that manner and you make contact, regardless of intent and whatnot, you run the risk of getting sent off. And okay, maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that's not a red card, or perhaps not even a foul. But in VAR, you run the risk, and unfortunately VAR went, today, that's a red card, and off you go.
2: Yeah, you sort of have to reluctantly accept it, I think, in that regard. Um, the overall display, Andy, Marcus Rashford had scored in seven straight Premier League games at Old Trafford before the weekend, Um Obviously, that run's come to an end now, but it's more the everyone else as well, isn't it? I mean, I know that the red card would have affected the way Manchester United attacked, not least because Tanaga had to take one of the attackers off to bring Scott McTominay on to, to shore up the midfield, but there just doesn't seem to be much output still from any of the others, really. It's still the Marcus Rashford show in attack, isn't it? Well, we can name them,
3: and Valt Jaden Sancho, Anthony, I thought they all had substandard games, even before the red card which did affect everything it affects the balance and the the way that your, your team plays uh, there was a good early combination between Rashford and Fernandes which opened Southampton up and Rashford had a shot on goal uh, his touch let him down when he was set up by Sancho uh, soon after that but it was a real off day and you're looking at players when you go down to 10 men who you need more from to make up for the missing player and I'm sorry, Anthony was very, very average. He's got quick feet uh, but it's not enough. Jaden Sancho didn't impose himself enough on the game. He put a lovely pass through to Marcus Rashford. Again, that was early on. Uh, Valtvegos was desperately shouting for that early ball from Marcus Rashford but I think to be fair, Marcus could see that it wasn't going to get to him because it was being blocked. When he did have a chance, uh, I think Luke Shaw crossed to his head and he was a really weak header after about half an hour, and then he he came off. But overall, not good enough. If you're looking for the the best performances for the game against Southampton, I think you're looking at the defenders, Rafael Varane, Martinez. I think some of Luke Shaw's crosses were, were fantastic. Good that the unbeaten record at home carries on. You are always going to have games where you drop points which frustrate but it does frustrate. I think you've got to look at the league table and think, United are still comfortable in third position, but you've got to start winning matches because that gap will close really quickly. You know, you get a bonus every week. This weekend it was Liverpool, but Newcastle won, Tottenham won, Chelsea won, and that's where you've got to be careful because that top four with 13 games to play, still not a given. There's a lot of football left to play. And doing that without Casimiro during a time when you've got injuries to players like Christian Eriksen and you've got the cup commitments is going to be really difficult
2: yeah and I think the game at St James's Park now becomes even more difficult for United doesn't it I think it was already going to be difficult with what happened at Wembley and there'll be a a very fired up St James's Park for that match to try and get their own back on Manchester United but there are in a position where they're three points behind United with a game in hand as well. And obviously that game now will mean that Casemiro is missing, which, like I say, makes it harder. Can we just talk about Anthony a little bit longer, Carl? You and I were sort of exchanging messages about Anthony after the game. I don't think we were too critical in a sense. There's, there's sort of praise for his work out of possession. There's praise for the way he sort of balances the team and his importance in the build-up and things like that. But... His creativity and, and the stats around that were startling. I mean, I, I asked you what what you could find on him. Um, can you just share with everyone what you found?
1: Yeah, so I had a look at big chances creating the Premier League this season, and Anthony's got zilch, none. He's got no assists, and his so expected assists is averaging to zero point zero four per ninety minutes.
2: Can you just explain what that means in case people don't? Fully understand expected assists.
1: So expected assists per ninety, uh, and the per ninety bit is so in an average game, how many times is he is he putting the ball into good goal scoring positions? And to, to have a score of point zero four is quite bad. Put this in context: if he took one corner kick and it reached Luke Shaw's head or Rahef Alvaran's head, that would be more than the zero point zero four. So he is not. Someone who is playing the through balls that someone like Marcus Rashford or Val need at this point in time. We know at this point in time, we know what Anthony wants to do. He wants to run down the right-hand side, cut inside, and then either swing in across or have a shot, uh, iron ribbon style. And that works in some situations. Um, After the victory over Real Betis, I asked Ten Hag whether or not he thought the Europa League competition suits Anthony more because the pace of the European games are different and, and Ten Hag was sort of like, eh, not really. He, he's just good all round and I've told him he has to do certain things. Um, and I think Ten Hag right now is focusing on making sure Anthony pops up in the right places at the right time in the final third. So he, he's not someone that writes the sentence but perhaps just adds the punctuation at the end with a shot or, or, or a final pass. But those final passes aren't happening at the moment. They are... He is... Be getting doubled up by defenders, you know, because they all know what he wants to do. And he, what's also quite concerning, is that he slows down so many promising counterattacks because he doesn't take the ball onto his right foot. Um, so when he's running, he, he always has to take it on his left. He always has to you know, get that ball onto his left foot when he's dribbling. And, you know, just trust your right, you know, knock it on your right foot and run after it if it's that bad. You know, just believe in your right foot. Um, but it, it is it is concerning because I think if you are in a situation where, especially when you're down to 10 men, you can't have someone like Anthony not creating. You, you create a sort of passenger situation. I thought, in hindsight, maybe Ten Hag could have kept Valk on and taken off one of Anthony or Jaden Sancho instead. Because there was a point, I'd say, from the 50th minute where United just needed someone to kick it long to who could hold the ball up. Um, Jaden Sancho is playing as a false nine. And it just wasn't the same. course, is not great in the air, but kicking it long to Valtveckels is better than what United did in the second half against Southampton.
2: How much of a concern is all this for United, Andy, considering we can't just rely on Marcus Rashford to score the goals, can we?
1: It's a concern when
3: your forwards are collectively not playing as well as they should be. And the team have been relying on Marcus Rashford to score the goals. And he has been scoring the goals. He's had his best season for Manchester United. But United need more from Anthony, from Jaden Sancho. Uh, I know we've seen glimpses of, of Garnaccio, um, of of Pellestre. I know why Vegorst was brought in. I do think in the summer Manchester United will go all out to buy a number nine, which should improve Marcus Rashford and you can see that the team is lacking a, a top-class finisher. You can see it in most matches. There's a chance where Bout Vegorst curses himself because he's narrowly missed, but Van Nistelrooy would put some of these chances away, and that's the, the, the priority area for Manchester United. United have got away with it so far. As we speak now on March the 13th, it has been a good season. The team are well-positioned in the league, well-positioned in the Cups, but it could very quickly unravel. I don't think it will do no but but I go back to my, my my last answer. um It's going to be very difficult because of the number of matches, because of the injuries and because of suspension to to key, key players and I think it would be a great shame if Manchester United faded away and finished fifth and didn't excel more in in the Cups but this season so far has been a good one, but you've seen that the the squad is still short? I remember um speaking to someone after the Barcelona games like uh, inside the club. Everyone was getting carried away with how good United have been in camp now. It's like, we've got a long, long way to go here. And I quite like that, actually.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's the right attitude, certainly, isn't it? Obviously, keep an eye on the Athletic for the very latest on Manchester United's attempts to strengthen the squad between now and the summer transfer window. You can also read Carl's take on Casemiro's red card, and the whole situation with him, really, that's on The Athletic right now. Remember, there is that offer of pound ninety-nine a month for the first year when you sign up at theathletic.com forward slash Man United pod.
3: Hello there, I'm Ali Maxwell. I'm the host of the Athletic Football Tactics podcast with Michael Cox, Liam Tharn and Mark Kerry. Each week we try and better understand and explain where possible the game that we love and we look at things through a a tactical and analytical lens We love a deep dive, we love to myth, bust, and just generally try and tackle football discussion in a depth and in a way that I don't think you find on many other pods. In recent weeks, we have released a two-part series looking at the state of football management. We've also looked at understanding Red Bull football and how well it travels outside of the Red Bull empire. Join us over on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast feed. Just search for the name of the pod wherever you listen
0: to yours. Okay, well, I'm sure you would have
2: noticed um, at the match on Sunday that Manchester United's players were wearing black armbands and you may have already seen as well Andy Mitton's tribute on The Athletic too. But we're going to take some time out now on the podcast to speak about Ian Sterling, who passed away on Saturday and was a hugely influential and popular fan representative for years at Old Trafford. Even if you weren't aware of Ian or his work, if you've been to the club or supported Manchester United, you probably would have benefited from him. And he was just a fantastic guy. And it's so, so sad.
3: It's really sad. And he's going to be a huge loss to Manchester United's fan base. Because as you said, even if you didn't know him, you've benefited from his actions. Ticket prices being held for over a decade, unheard of in the 90s and noughties. But because of people like Ian Sterling, having face-to-face conversations with people like Richard Arnold, And having that level of communication, fans have benefited from his actions. You're allowed to stand up now inside Old Trafford. That's because not of something which happened overnight, but because of people like Ian Sterling going to Leverkusen 10 years ago and pushing for safe standing to be reintroduced into British football grounds. He was an activist. He was a proper red. He was a big family man. He was very proud to be from Salford. Fans would see him all over, watching Manchester United. He had time for people. He'd have a drink with people on European away trips. You could see him outside Old Trafford, and lots of fans did. Uh, He had a very difficult job because United's fan base is so vast. Everyone wants slightly different things. It's almost impossible. And he ain't got quite a bit of stick online, really unfairly, I thought. But he didn't shirk it. He'd say, look, you've got a problem. Come and meet me. And those few who did, because most of them don't, walked away thinking, don't agree with everything we said, but really, really respect Ian. Yeah. He was witty. He was intelligent. You wanted him fighting your corner. I'm proud to call him a friend. He would be really, really missed. And the, the reaction to him passing on Saturday was incredible because hundreds of people... And not just Manchester United fans, people from Liverpool and Chelsea and Manchester City saying, actually, I knew him and he did this for me. And some of them were quite funny. United fans saying, yeah, I once got arrested for doing absolutely nothing. And, yeah, I'm sure you're, sure you're doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, Ian got me off a five-year ban. He fought the corner for fans and fans often get shafted. I look back from the messages with, it, with him and October, do you want me to put you in touch with... The Chelsea Supporters Trust. And that was the time when we didn't know when that game was going to be played at Stamford Bridge. People like Ian had the thankless task of fighting the corner for fans. He was 57 years old. It's tragic that he's died so young. He was at the League Cup final two weeks ago. He was in great spirit. He was telling people of family holidays he was going to have um he was outside Leeds stationed. Um directing United fans to taxis only a month ago. It, it's really tragic. And um, the, the, the reaction to him passing has been absolutely beautiful, but he will be sorely missed. And I think it was very fitting that the club put a, a reef on his seat in J-Stand. And just look at the comments. I don't need to say any more. Just look at how loved and respected he was by the comments that have been written about him since he, he's passed.
2: Yeah, thank you, Andy. The biggest compliment I can give Ian, and I've probably not known him as long as you, but I've known him quite a while, is that he did such tricky work politically as like a a go-between between between the club and the fans often. And he he told a lot of people, a lot of home truths and a lot of quite sort of um, notable people at the club as well. And somehow, despite doing that for years and treading this very sort of delicate, a diplomatic line, which he's smashed apart at times. he was universally liked on all sides. And that is an incredible thing for someone to be able to do over these years. I mean, he's going into the office of the chief executive of Manchester United at one point and telling him exactly what he thinks of the latest policy or the direction that the club's going in. He's meeting Boris Johnson after the plans for the Super League have blown up. And he's meeting the man on the street to try and sort out a dispute that he's got We've been arrested or whatever it might be. Uh, he just had time for everyone. Uh, he, he, he worked really hard to help as many people as he could. Uh, and I think the fact that he was sort of liked from all sides is a, a brilliant testament to just what a fantastic guy he was. Um, the first time I met him actually, he came on um, a television station that I used to work on in Manchester, Channel M. Uh, this was back in about 2009, something like that. Uh, and it's when the Carlos Tevez poster had been put up um, in Manchester by by City saying, welcome to Manchester. I'm sure people remember it. So we set up this idea that you get two fans, uh, one from United, one from City, debating on the sofa about the banner and the, the whole sort of mood in Manchester at the time of, of City sort of trying to catch United and United trying to keep them back. And he absolutely relished the prospects of coming in uh, and having a right go at this City fan who sort of comically was called Fred Pratt. He's a fantastic (laughs) guy, but it's like a comic book name. And Ian sort of asked me before he came on, "It's like, who's the City fan? Who's the City fan? And I said, oh, it's a guy called Fred Pratt. Do you know him? He said, oh yeah, I've known a few of them actually. (laughs) So just absolutely brilliant. And uh, again... They had a right set to on the the programme. It was supposed to be about a three or four-minute segment. ended up running to nine minutes because it was so good and the (laughs) the director and the producers just wanted it to keep going. But guess what? At the end of it all, he went home with Fred's number and they would share messages uh, as time went by of United beating City uh, and vice versa, unfortunately, um, and went away with another friend. Just an absolutely brilliant guy. um, And our love goes out to to Lynn and Lucy, and of course, those who, who knew him best as well. Carla, uh, I guess you saw yesterday at Old Trafford the, the depth of feeling for Ian as well, because unprecedented for the club to wear black armbands for someone who is essentially a, a supporter, and a very important supporter, but a supporter nonetheless.
1: Absolutely. And it, it speaks to the immensity of his character uh, and his impact on, on the football club as well. Uh, there was a little bit where we were talking to, to a member of staff from Manchester United who said, you know, while there were times, you know, Manchester United clashed with Ian, it, he was always just an amazing character and, and it was never truly combative. It, it was always collaborative because at, at every point in time, Ian made it clear that he wanted Manchester United to do better. And sometimes that meant telling three or four individuals to buck their ideas up. And sometimes it meant pointing out to three or four individuals that Manchester United is more than just you or me, but is home to thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, millions of people around the world. Um, Yeah, a tremendous individual. I heartily recommend you read Andy's piece because it's free to read. It's incredible. Uh, And um, yeah, thoughts go out to his family as well.
3: His his daughter's actually just messaged me and Lucy and Lynn, both working in... The NHS in Salford, both great citizens of Salford, um, they will have seen the reaction. And I do hope that they get some comfort from that because it's clearly an extremely difficult time.
2: Okay, well, as Manchester United were preparing to take on Southampton on Sunday, the women's team were also in action in an incredibly important game in the WSL against Chelsea. And unfortunately for Mark Skinner's side, their record of not taking anything from Chelsea in the WSL goes on. It's a huge blow this, Carl, isn't it? Yep,
1: yep. Real title ramifications here. Um, Chelsea now go ahead of Manchester United women's team in the Super League. And, well the rivals are now mounting uh, what had looked to be an impressive title run from Mark Skinner's side is now looking like it's going to devolve into a bit of a scrap for the Champions League places.
2: Sounds familiar, that, doesn't it?
1: United's women team should have enough to finish in the top three. But the, the manner of the defeat against Chelsea shows the gap between what, you know, I mean, Emma Hayes' Chelsea is probably the best women's team in England if not one of the best women's teams in Europe and United who are still a very young team both in terms of personnel and in terms of just how long they've existed uh, and that little you know that they need to make that jump and they'll get there one day but perhaps it's just a bit beyond them right now
3: big big blow um, we can't pretend otherwise it was a classic six pointer I didn't see the game I saw the comments after it I saw the manager complaining uh about some decisions he felt should have resulted in penalties. Sounds familiar, that. I'm just looking at the fixtures going ahead. United have still got to play Arsenal at home and Manchester City at home. So to finish in the top three, which would be a big success for the women's team, got to be beating Arsenal or Manchester City at home. If you lose them two, then you're falling out of the top three because most of the other teams lower down get beat by the top teams on a far more consistent basis than in the the men's Premier League. The top four teams, well, there's a gap of eight points between fourth and fifth. So Manchester United have got to finish in the top three of those four. By beating City or Arsenal, we'll go a long way to doing that.
2: Yeah, like I said before, they've never taken a point off Chelsea in the WSL. They dominated possession in the game. I saw a fair amount of it actually in the press room at Old Trafford uh, before the Southampton game in between the, the the stuff I had to do before the match for work and every time you looked up United were on the ball but just not quite as as ruthless, not quite as much of a, a cutting edge as Chelsea had. Sam Kerr always seems to have a fingerprints over these big games in the WSL. Um but it's important for United to finish in the top three for the, the, the progress of the team as well. Like you were saying, Carl, it, it, you know it's a young side, it's a, a side that's improving. Um, but there's key players out of contract at the end of the season and you feel like getting into the Champions League for the first time would be absolutely crucial in keeping Mary Earps and keeping uh, Leslie Russo and there's several others as well on a battle who's played a lot of games for United.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, this is, this is by and large the story of the Women's Super League, that there is always a number of free agents moving to and fro and, and possibly deciding to go to Europe or to, to North America as well. Mark Skinner's side are... Uh, they've, you know, done three or four inventive tactics that I haven't seen too much in the Women's Super League. You know, it, it was watching Manchester United's women's side was the first time I saw inverted fullbacks in a Super League game. I was like, oh, that's... That's quite nice. But I think they need perhaps a, a, another goal scorer to help Russo as well. Because it, It's not as bad as Marcus Rashford and the rest in the men's side, but but Russo probably needs a little bit more help. Uh, Arsenal's victory in the Conte Cup over Chelsea as well uh, should be raising some eyebrows because you know, Arsenal haven't had a great season due to injuries to Beth Mead and, and Viv Miedemar, but they can still beat anyone on their day. So United should finish ahead of Arsenal. I need to be live to that <laughs> they, they've they got offers from other clubs so getting in the
3: Champions League is really important because there are offers from mainland Europe from other domestic clubs and given uh, the wages of some of the women's players you know they're not spectacular they will take those offers if they can be close to life changing amounts of money and you're starting to get that you're starting to get a couple of clubs saying we will pay you hundreds of thousands per year and I know for a fact that some of those girls at Manchester United have got very good offers. I also know that they would like to stay at Manchester United if they get pay rises if the team are playing Champions League football.
2: They've got another game, of course, at Old Trafford um, at the end of this month against West Ham. I think tickets are still available for that if you want to get down and see them. If you want to read more about the women's team and their, well, failing WSL title bid, Charlotte Harper has written an article which is on The Athletic. And there's also one up there as well from Mark Critchley. There's no real sort of progress when it comes to a potential takeover of Manchester United. But Critch, our mate, has been in Qatar and he's been talking to the locals about how they might feel about potential Qatari investment in Manchester United. So, all roads next lead to Betis, don't they? That beautiful Spanish town just outside of Seville, Andy, isn't it? Fantastic. Spain's fourth
3: biggest city. I need to read your guide, I think. I've not finished it yet. You can't read it. I've been working on it. I'll have it over the next couple of days. Don't worry. I put the interview up with Rod Fornley. That was published on uh, Sunday. I found that really interesting to talk to Rod because he was a guy who... Really on the inside of the club, best friends with some massive, massive name footballers, and his old job was about discretion and saying nothing. So he's obviously left the club now. He can he can speak a little bit more. Gave us some fantastic anecdotes, which are in the piece, and I think that readers have, have responded to that.
2: Well, he's inside a dressing room with Sir Alex Ferguson, Louis van Gaal, yeah. uh, Jose Mourinho, yeah, yeah. You know, David Moyes, the things yeah, he yeah. have oh, He, he is literally the fly on the wall at I times, saw isn't he? He you know?
3: everything. And, you know, Jose Mourinho got back in touch with him six months after he left and said, Rod, where do you think I went wrong at Manchester United? He was absolutely valued there. And for him to talk about some of his stories and some of the pranks, I mean... One of the players put <laughs> snus on one of his sandwiches on a preseason tour, and he ate it. And the whole team just sat there laughing at him. <laughs> and <Jeez. laughs> started I've to feel I've got a fair really idea sick. who that
2: player would have been as well, by the way. Yeah,
3: I've got a good idea who that player what uh, yeah. what was as well. And then he ends up vomiting. <laughs> <laughs> and he just brought. There's a bit where Olly Solskjaer comes in and read it in the piece, but he's got like these really bad boots. <laughs> so Rod makes two cardboard skis out and puts his boots on him because he looked like cross-country skiing boots. (laughs) he comes back in after training. The whole team are laughing at him. I think as well as as doing his job, he was um, a social convener. He, He brings smiles to that dressing room and felt that that was a really important part of a winning machine. And he he laughed at himself. He said sometimes when I'm massaging some of the lads who can barely speak English, so I slow my English right down. I sound like a right egg. He's <laughs> <laughs> trying to talk to him. Yeah, he was good. I like I liked um, doing Rod, and he's you know he's still a masser. He's working close to Manchester, and he still gets on well with a lot a lot, lot of the players. But Real Betis, well, very comfortable that Manchester United can go there with a four-one win. Really looking forward to it. Uh, can't be complacent, really. I know Manchester United will be 90% favourites here. Bet are still a good team. We saw it in a little 20-minute spell at Old Trafford, but they drew one all away at Villarreal at the weekend. If they've got Borja Iglesias up front, if they start with Sergio Canales, if they've got 59,000 people behind them, they will be very different to them shivering in the sleep. In, in Manchester. Spoke to the club on Friday, actually. They were really keen to say, we took four and a half thousand fans to Old Trafford. They loved it. We were welcomed. We got behind our team. Ignore the actions of five or six, ten men trying to jump over the segregation barrier and failing to uh, during that fir- first um, game. So looking forward to it. A couple of thousand reds going. Seville is an absolutely wonderful town. Should be a bit warmer than Manchester Uh, But if Manchester United are not going through after that, then you've got a serious problem. That would be a a bigger surprise almost than that hammering at Liverpool.
2: What hammering at Liverpool? I've forgotten about that. Liverpool got beat Um, by Bournemouth (laughs) at the weekend. I believe
3: so, yeah, 1-0. Whose ground, you're absolutely right, does have big wide spaces behind two sides and housing on (laughs) the other two. So we were both right and we were both wrong. Is it a
2: cricket pitch?
3: Yeah, it is. Well done.
0: Yeah, I thought it was.
3: Yeah,
2: Geek. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm in your camp now, aren't I? I'm going to have a book about Dean Court behind me in no time. Go. Oh, he's digging into his oh. bookcase. You can probably hear the shuffling. Oh, I've got books on stadiums in Italy. I've got the lot,
3: mate. <laughs> when I retire, I'm going to travel around Europe and, and I'm going to write an updated version of Simon Inglis's Football Grounds of Europe.
2: That doesn't sound like retirement.
3: It really doesn't. Bit of travel, <laughs> bit of stadium writing. Or if my wife ever bins me, I'm just going to hit the road and write about stadiums.
2: Probably more likely, actually, of the two scenarios. (laughs) (laughs) Especially if she listens to this podcast. Um, Carl, let's go to Real Betis. How how tricky is this a team for Ten Hag to pick? We sort of know what he'll probably do, and that's just pick a stronger team as possible. But there is signs of fatigue, like we've spoken about, in this United team, and especially playing against 11 men with 10 for so long on Sunday too. And, of course, another cup knockout game at Old Trafford this weekend. Will he rotate? I feel silly saying it.
1: Kind of. To answer your question with another question, did you know Casemiro is a booking off a suspension in the Europa League right now? Would you start him? Oh, that's an odd
2: one, that. It is, isn't it? Yeah. I'd, I'd start him, but then take him off with more than five minutes of the game to go to show that I've learned my lesson <laughs> from Selhurst Park. Andy? <laughs> I'd say
3: starting because he's not going to be playing other matches, but United should be going through against Betis even without Casemiro.
2: Do you play a midfield that you're gonna need in the Premier League? do, 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 do it's you do you we'll look at what your partnership's gonna be in these three games, these four games if you include the FA Cup and and play that midfield?
3: So last season Casemiro missed a really big game for Real Madrid against Paris Saint-Germain because he had a yellow card suspension. And Madrid had lost 1-0 in Paris in the first leg. But here's how freaky football is. Without him playing, Madrid won 3-1 and went straight through. So who knows what's going to happen. I'm just seeing last year um, he played against Betis. He won 1-0 away. And I don't know. I mean, I, this is one for Eric, is it? He's the man here. Do you start Casemiro in in that town called Betis?
1: I think you might get a repeat of, of a previous cup game where Casemiro played the second half 45 minutes. This this might be a good opportunity for Thoreau Malassia, Diogo Dallo, Harry Maguire possibly to start and then depending how things work you you bring on people for the second half. If you're Fred and Scott McTominay you should be making the argument that you start against Real Betis because you're going to be playing the next four games together anyway. So
2: Yeah, I feel like Fred will play after being left on the bench at the weekend as well. I, I feel really sorry for Alejandro Garnacho because you'd think that he'd be starting this game, Andy, as well, wouldn't you? If he's okay. We don't know the status of his of his injury. It was a really bad challenge, that, from Kyle Walker-Peters. Not that he deserved a reaction whatsoever, the absolutely disgusting reaction that he got on social media.
3: No, no my heart sinks a little bit when I see players getting racial abuse for something they've done. On a football pitch. I mean For a tackle. It just absolutely sickens me. I'm glad to see that Garnacho is alive after that tackle because the way his reaction for the first minute or so, <laughs> I did I did I did worry about him. He limped off. Um Eric Tenog said afterwards he didn't think it was too serious. I didn't think that Garnacho wanted to come off, actually, to be honest. Well he stayed I think on for was, eleven it, minutes. I mean that yeah, that could yeah, have been I a think he wanted to stay on should he have been on the pitch for those 11 minutes you know I, I i felt watching it there was a very mixed message there are you fit to play on or are you not fit to play on and in a in a high stakes game like that when southampton were attacking every 35 seconds i think maybe it, united should have been more decisive but i don't know what the answer is maybe you know can do what real madrid last year did last year against betis casemiro's last ever league game for Madrid was actually against Betis and they played him for the first 45 minutes and took him off. That's interesting,
2: isn't it? So he's used to just getting a 45 minute run out. I mean, I suppose you you could not start him, see how you're going for 45 minutes and then bring him on if you need him, if the score's you know, getting perilous. But then Tenag just doesn't seem the type, does he? I think he'll play his strongest possible team. And we'll be talking after the game on this podcast about Was that the right thing? Was that the wrong thing? And he'll do the same against Fulham and then he'll do the same against Newcastle and we'll still be debating it. Um, He insists, because I spoke to him on Friday, asked him about the status of some of the players. He insists that the team are very fit that they're capable of playing all these matches they're both physically and mentally strong and that they'll be able to get through it so we'll see you have to back his judgement with the way things have gone we're going to leave it there then on Talk of the Devils uh, remember there is that offer of £1.99 a month for a year when you join at theathletic.com forward slash Man United pod but Carl thank you very much for being with us as always thank you to you Andy as well and thanks for listening at home if you get chance go and read Andy's article on Ian Sterling an absolutely incredible man Take care. We'll see you on the next one. Bye bye.
1: The Athletic.